Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we hear from guests all over the country who have been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid outside the box, I mean outside the church building ministry, that has inspired us to think outside the box and outside the church building too. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, activists, scholars, authors, liturgy makers, where God's beloved community has left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today is a big day for the Jesus Has Left the Building community. Today, we are sharing an interview with the Reverend Will Gaffney. She is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School, and she is the author of A Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church and translator of its biblical sections. She is also the author of Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to women of the Torah and of the throne, a commentary on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah in the Wisdom series, Daughters of Miriam, Women, Prophets in Ancient Israel, and co-editor of the People's Bible and the People's Companion to the Bible. She is an Episcopal priest, canonically resident in the Diocese of Pennsylvania and licensed in the Diocese of Texas, and a former army chaplain and congregational pastor in the AME Zion Church. We have been big fans of Dr. Will Gaffney for a long time, and we are so excited to welcome her onto Jesus Has Left the Building today. Dr. Gaffney, we are so glad that you joined us today on the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast. We, I think, have been waiting almost a year to have a conversation yeah. with you um, because you were on sabbatical. And I, I personally, and I, I think Mandy is um, so thrilled to hear your story, hear about your work and why it is so important to the church right now. Um, the Christian church and maybe beyond. And um, we're just, yeah, we're very excited. And I have already things I want to talk about and things I want to ask you about both Womanist Midrash and the Woman's Lectionary, uh, because it is really on the forefront of what I think the church should be doing right now. Thank you, Marta. And thank you, Mandy, for inviting me and for honoring the boundaries of my sabbatical. The question I want to ask you is about, um, I guess, both works. And I know you've done more than the, these writings also, but um, how how are they born? How are they born into the world? How was Womanist Midrash born? And how was the Woman's Lectionary? And I know there are probably two different stories, um, but how did, how did you come to think of it? I, we want to know the, the personal and the academic and, and how that came about through your call. They are united. Uh, I really do think of Womanist Midrash as that book that you are, in the words of Dr. Katie Cannon, to write because it's the book you need, it's the book you want. Uh, my story of scholarship begins with my time as a divinity student at Howard University School of Divinity. And from the very beginning, my Hebrew Bible professor, Dr. Jean Rice of Sainted Memory, drew us so deeply into the text. And it was clear immediately, you know, I was eating it up. And it was also clear that I needed to study Hebrew to know the text better. 
And at the same time, our formation was taught that year by Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. And Dr. Douglas introduced us to the readings of Howard Thurman and Jesus and the Disinherited really um, spoke to me that line about when Dr. Thurman is asked by an Indian man on the subcontinent, why is he a Christian? And he lists all the white terror uh, that has happened in Christianity. And Dr. Thurman says, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm a follower of the religion of Jesus. And it was immediately clear that if I want to follow the religion of Jesus, I need to be able to delve into the scriptures of Jesus in their language. Mm. And as I took to Hebrew and on into my PhD program, it was clear that they're just things that aren't quite right in the trans translations we all read, things I didn't like, and particularly things pertaining to gender. So people who will have read Womanist uh, Midrash will know right at the beginning, I talk about how the grammatical language for spirit is feminine and Genesis opens with one masculine verb and one feminine verb but none of us have ever read feminine God language in our major translations. And there's a, uh, what I call a conspiratorial cheat that instead of saying she hovered over the face of the waters, they will simply say the spirit and trust on 2000 years of patriarchy to convince people that the spirit is masculine. Mm -hmm. And in the New Testament where it's neuter, uh, you have the option of keeping it neuter as it, which sounds awkward because it's a relational concept. Right. Uh, but instead of then choosing the pronoun from the underlying text and culture, they chose a pronoun that doesn't exist, you know, in the grammar of either testament. So that example uh, let me know that as I was writing and preaching, you know, preaching the whole way through. Um, that I stopped preaching from published translations. Uh, I was I was in seminary when I started translating the text that I was going to preach. Um, and as I would read those texts to my students, my students started calling them the RGT, the Revised Gaffney Translation. Mm. Uh, so I knew it wasn't in me to do a whole translation because I knew I would stop when I got to Leviticus, which I actually like but I didn't want to crawl through that. And yeah. I didn't want to crawl through um, Psalm uh, 119. So I knew it was unlikely I'd do a whole translation. But that concept uh, that goes through all of my work, my preaching, all of my writing, any scholarship I do, I'm going to translate it myself, unless in something like the commentary I did in the wisdom series on Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, uh, the series was using the NRV and we didn't have page space for me to, you know, put a parallel translation, but on certain verses, I would. And my approach to that commentary was much more deeply woven into the language than any of the other commentaries in this series. So that became um, not just a signature or a brand, as they say today, but my primary methodology 
is to work with the text in its original language. And as the Jewish saying goes, reading the Torah in translation is like kissing a bride through her veil. And what I say to people who are not in our academic worlds is that if you met somebody uh, on the subway and asked them what they did and they said they specialized in ancient Chinese literature, and then you asked them, wow, do you read Chinese? And they said, no, um, we have really good English translations. You would not think that they were a serious scholar. Mm. Uh, biblical studies and biblical literature is the, is the only genre in which people think whatever those people did a couple hundred years is good enough, or maybe even in terms of the church, people don't intellectually acknowledge that there's a translation layer. So mm -hmm. some people are all, you know, literal Bible and sometimes literal Bible in one antique translation, but not acknowledging the slipperiness of translation. Yeah. But that's an American thing. If we were Europeans, we would not be having this discourse because Europeans are polyglot, right? So, and, and my students who are polyglot, uh, you know, we talk about how there's lots of words for 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 masculine and, and overbearingly masculine patriarchal, but there's no other word that does what macho and machismo do, right? There's mm -hmm. no other word that does what shalom does. There's no other word that does what aloha, although aloha and shalom actually can sort of translate each other. But mm -hmm. then in modern Hebrew, the verb underneath shalom means to complete your check and pay your bill. So, um, so that's that story of language is how I got into both projects. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really, because I work in the parish and that's sort of my call. Um, you know, I remember when I started to work with your works and other works and, and began to feminize the spirit in the Hebrew texts. And I remember having a conversation with someone about that and um, using the she, her pronouns for spirit. And she was shocked and in awe and could not quite get her head wrapped around it. Even though for me, I was like, well, yeah, like that, it was just such a natural, like, yeah, I can, like there's not even any question about it. I can totally see it. Um, how would you respond to someone just in the church and they're hearing that for the first time? Like what would um, sort of outside of, um, I mean, I know that you're a scholar and which is, you know, what, what is so brilliant about your work, but like, what would you say to someone? Cause I know you're also a minister and what would you say to someone who just was like, can't even get there? How would you help bring them along in that way? Well, it's important to do uh, teaching uh, in the church when you change uh, your liturgical language or introduce a new uh, resource. So I am an Episcopal priest, and what has happened in a number of dioceses is that they have invited me out to do teaching, uh, teaching for clergy and lay and whosoever will, and then they adopted the Lucky them. <laughs> then they adopted the lectionary uh, sometimes for a liturgical season or for the year. Other people just, you know, rode with it. Um, some people asked their bishop's approval, some didn't, but that teaching setup 
is what I think is important. So if I'm going to, if I'm invited to somebody's congregation I've never met, and my text has that, I am going to teach it in the sermon. And I'm going to say what Jesus knew and what we may not know is that in the language he spoke and prayed, the gender of the word for spirit was feminine. And so every mm -hmm. time he used a pronoun in his native language, he said she, right? So I would mm -hmm. say it that way in the sermon. Mm -hmm. um, and then, mm -hmm. of course, in a teaching space, I would do it differently. But I, I've done it all the time. And sometimes I make the joke and say, so uh, if we want to be biblical literalists, you know, we do it this way. So it's it's actually not difficult. It 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 just requires um, teaching in addition mm -hmm. to preaching. And teaching in okay. the middle of preaching when necessary. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's actually really wonderful. Um I have one more question, Mandy, so don't get mad at me. Um, because I I have this, I have womanist midrash open up to page two. And um, I love so much the supper invitation. Mm -hmm. I love everything about that. And I, you know, I can read it over and over and over again. And of course, I can, um, you know, understand it in sort of my own lens and my own life story. But I want to hear from you around. It is so rich and theological. And I think, you know, just for us normal people speak so many volumes because all of us have had an experience of a mealtime, right? And so I want you to talk about that image. The supper table image, and for people who haven't read the book, because I did something that publishing tells you never to do is I published a book whose title consisted of two words most people were not going to know, womanist mm -hmm. and midrash. Mm -hmm. And so in order to invite people into the, the book uh, and the word language of invitation was present immediately, I wanted to invite them to a supper in which we talk story, that's the Hawaiian expression. Um, I have, uh, I'm embedded to some significant degree in, in a Hawaiian parish, where we mm. talk story about uh, how we understand Bible. And so that this book then was not like some theological and academic books. This is the way you should interpret scripture and you haven't been doing it this way, you're wrong, right? It wasn't that. Uh, my other metaphor is that it's uh, paint on a palette. So I wanted people to know that this book was for them, whether they were a womanist or not, whether they understood that or not, whether they understood the complexities of Midrash, that everyone was invited. I wanted it to be read widely. Um, and I also had in the, in the back of my mind, the Eucharistic table. Um, I am uh, an open Eucharist person in a largely open Eucharist denomination. So those two images were going together. And it was just a reminder that um, what for some people is a is a potluck, that you can kind of get anything in those and then find that you really like something there. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just really speaks to uh, just the co like communal theology around around womanism and uh, and I wasn't sure if that's sort of what you were thinking around that like deeply communal understanding of being in the world. Um, but I love that it was an invitation for everyone. And it absolutely goes back to uh, that sort of core canonical definition of womanism by Alice Walker. And whenever invoke mm -hmm. her name, I have to say mm -hmm. that uh, that definition has been so generative. However, her anti-Semitism has been absolutely death dealing. And so I can't invoke her name I without repudiating that. But part of that mm -hmm. definition included, you know, mention of all of these other people, uh, you know, in the in the family, in the family of Black folk, in the family of womanists, and that image of of a garden of flowers, where all different flowers, and there's a point where she talks about all the different uh, shades of skin, from you know black and brown to pink, and so there was already a sense that in the world of womanism, the people who are at the core include a whole lot of everybody. And because it is relational and communal, it also includes the people we're tied to. And we are all tied to people who are of different races and ethnicities, who have a variety of theological and religious practices and none. So womanism is at its heart um, communal in that way. Dr. Gaffney, will you, for our listeners, um, you, you mentioned you did this thing that publishers don't want you to do with the two words that people won't understand. So for our listeners, will you just give us a brief definition of womanist and midrash? Certainly. Womanism is Black feminism. It is a reactionary feminism. It is reactionary against the racism in classic white feminism and reactionary against the sexism, patriarchy, and massage noir, uh, which is a real embedded hatred of Black women is what massage noir means, uh, that was in the Black liberation movement. Uh, so uh, a group of Black women uh, who were ideologically feminist, but feminist in a way that was communal as that definition talked about that would later come to be understood as intersectional, um, uh, that's an entirely new form of feminism. And because Black feminism, womanism, is richly intersectional, it means it's always looking at multiple integrated and overlapping issues and oppressions. So we don't uh, look at gender uh, without looking at gender identity and gender performance, what some people might understand is orientation. And we don't do that without looking at class and we don't do it without looking at ability, disability and ageism. So uh, womanism is uh, in one of my definitions, a richer, thicker, deeper feminism. Mm. Midrash is a Jewish word, a Hebrew word, uh, Aramaic word that uh, refers to biblical interpretation. It comes from the Hebrew root that means to seek. Um, 
I'm going to say it is Amos, uh, seek me and live, that seeking. And so it, as its use evolved, it began to mean to seek in the text, to understand, to interpret it. And Midrash is a school of Jewish interpretive practices, rabbinic practices uh, that begin, honestly, they, they classically begin with, with Ezra, but can be understood to go back further, but there becomes a set of methodologies and principles and practices, and Midrash is rooted deeply in the language of the text, and sometimes it includes answering questions the text leaves unanswered and volunteering information, uh, which is why some have come to understand Midrash's fan fiction, uh, because it will uh, include stories and names and things that are not in the text. But it's important to understand that when the rabbis do that in the classical literature of rabbinic Judaism, they're doing so according to uh, different schools and sets of rules. Right. Thank you for clarifying those words. I think that's important. Um, so let's go back to, or I, I maybe it's going forward to a women's lectionary. Um, so Marta and I have both preached. Neither of us have been brave enough to take it on for a whole season or a whole year yet. Although I think we both um, have considered it and hopefully we'll do that at some point. Um, but we've both preached from um, the a women's lectionary a couple of times, you know, um, pulling passages, um, pulling days. In fact, I preached um, two Sundays ago on the beheading of John and that whole um, dynamics of power. Um, and I, it, one of the things that has been, this is kind of going back um, to this feminine language for God. One of the things that has been um, the most shocking to me is that I think that people are more comfortable talking about power and privilege in the, our scriptures than they are in um, understanding um, that all of it is a translation and that, uh, you know, unless we're reading from the original language, which most of our congregations are not, that, that this is um, an interpretation, you know? Um, and I'm just wondering, like, what what kind of feedback have you gotten from congregations, from pastors, from parishioners who have experienced preaching from the women's lectionary? Um, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly are people, um, like, just can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what are people experiencing? Certainly. So uh, let me also say for your listeners that a women's lectionary for the whole church is a project that sets up a, a preaching calendar, if you will, selects texts for each Sunday of the year and for all of the feast days following the Anglican calendar. It does not consult the existing Episcopal lectionary or the revised common lectionary that Protestants use or the, or the missile that Roman Catholics use. So it is an entirely new uh, 
curation or pairing of texts. Uh, and that's four texts in our tradition, usually. Uh, a first lesson, which is primarily the Hebrew Bible, then a psalm, then an epistle, then a gospel. So what I did was to choose texts that center women's stories for the most part, or have female characters, and weave them together to present preachers an entirely new set of texts that are also seasonally appropriate so that they are Advent texts or they are texts suitable for uh, Good Friday and the crucifixion. In that, your listener will not be surprised that I did all of those translations myself, which was not actually the plan. I started with the NRSV and I said, oh, I'm just going to fix a couple things. I'm going to spot check. And uh, that devolved into me doing everything. Because it's all a disaster. I'm there sorry? was no because it was all a disaster. Yeah, there was that, no stop checking yeah, that wasn't yeah. you could do. <laughs> right. You know, if I were to, to put a little white out on the pages, then the whole pages would, would be covered. And I made the decision to go back to feminine God language. Because a lot of people pray the Psalms or read the Psalms devotionally, people who don't quote, read Bible and aren't religious, sometimes read Psalms. And because people were not hearing that feminine God language, I certainly used it when it came, to, came up in the Hebrew Bible uh, in the first lesson. But I made the decision that all of the God language, if there was a pronoun uh, to be translated in the Psalm, in the Psalter of the lectionary, of a women's lectionary, I used only feminine language, even when it wasn't called for by the text. And I have a, an introduction where I talk about this so that people can experience reading and praying the Psalms with uh, the divine feminine. So that's what the lectionary project is. Uh, it's a three-year cycle, A, B, and C, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John is sprinkled all over every place. And there's a fourth volume that's a standalone one-year lectionary for congregations that want to try it, but don't want to just read one gospel for the whole year. Now. And is that year W? w and W is for women. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when I did this, before I published this, in my life, because uh, I'm an activist, uh, as well as a womanist biblical scholar, and I have a small public profile, um, I have gotten hate mail um, and threats, one particular threat uh, we, we elevated to the FBI. I had a situation where because of the pandemic, I was no longer going in person, but there was such a threat uh, on that campus that they were having to do uh, some increased uh, security uh, when they thought I was coming in person. So I was girding my loins to use a biblical expression that does not apply to me because to gird your loin is to tie up your testicles. But I was girding my, my, my ovaries and waiting for the wave of hate mail. And I have never gotten a single piece of hate mail about the lectionary, which continues to perplex me. That's amazing. Um, I don't know if, if my haters are all in non-liturgical churches, so <laughs> they've never heard of it. Um, but even when I the first review was in the National Catholic Quarter, and I said, okay, here we go. 
but it just simply has not happened. Um, but the feedback I have gotten has been so rich. Um, so many emails, so many people stopping me. And my favorite stories are the unexpected uses. So a, a seminary girlfriend of mine has a nephew who's incarcerated and he's, he was clergy before he went in and he uh, works in the chaplain's office from the inside. And he said that God told him he should preach more about women. And when she told me that, I thought, oh, he is not the only man God told that to. But he's the only man I know who said, I'm going to do it, but I don't know how to do it. So my friend sent mm -hmm. him all my books off of her, shop, her shelf. And so a women's lectionary for the whole church is being used in a men's prison in Maryland. So I told this story, mm -hmm. uh, put it on mm -hmm. Facebook, and a woman said, I'm using it in LA County jails. And then mm. when I was at our professional meeting for academics in the field of religion, a young man walked up to me and told me he was using it in Rikers. I Prison ministry was just not even in my universe. And I'm a former army chaplain, mm -hmm. but it, it just, so that, and then the email from the woman who was reading it to her daughter while she was breastfeeding her. Mm. So she would grow up with mm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and again, so I mentioned the clerk, the bishops who brought me in. And so that's a whole nother layer of affirmation that they said, okay, let's just bring her in so we could get to using it. Um, and so that, that is a whole nother uh, layer of, of support, mm -hmm. but uh, just, uh, you know, people who cry, there's a lot of crying, um, uh, who are, I get people who are angry because they feel that things were hidden from them and taken from mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, my largest group of adopters uh, seem to be ex-evangelical male clergy. Um, they come for a world where they want resources in a packet. They want to buy a book. They want a thing. Um, and they are so excited about this. It's a whole group of largely white men um, who are non-denominational, or they may now be in a, a denomination or association like American Baptist, but mm -hmm. they came out of the evangelical world. And so they have a deep love for Bible are keenly aware and often deeply wounded of the ways in which it's been used so harmful. Mm -hmm. And so that community has followed me because I'm a person who elevates Bible highly as we do in the black church, but does it mm -hmm. as a scholar and does it as mm -hmm. a scholar who still identifies as a Christian and is clergy and is a pastor. And so all mm -hmm. of those parts of my identity uh, make it trustworthy work for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have just uh, been uh, deeply touched by how deeply moving the work is for so many people. One of the things I hear you saying, Dr. Gaffney, is about how important this educational piece is, right? And I think that that's, for me, you know, like your um, your introductions and, and the way that you talk um, in interviews, you know, I've read some things um, both on your website and in um, online and in, you know, Christian news. Um, I think you talk about that education piece, you've done it here, that, you know, 
when people understand why you've done this, that you're not, um, and let, let me just say, I think it actually would be perfectly fine if, uh, woman in 2023 wanted to change every pronoun to she in the Bible. Um, you know, if that were <laughs> the thing that were most healing for her, like I'm all for that. But as you say, there are people who, you know, are probably much more, um, biblically, uh, literal than I am, um, who that's not okay with. Um, when you talk about why you've chosen to do that and how it's actually a scholarly decision, I just can't imagine that people could um, argue with that. You know, I mean, uh, people can argue with everything, but um, maybe it gives you a little more of that footing. I don't know. In just broadly in my biblical work, um, uh, at a previous uh, institution where I taught, um, I asked people why they were in this particular course interpreting the book of whatever it was that year. And they said, and this uh, guy who represents uh, so much of my Black church background said, I'm not a feminist. I don't, I don't believe in feminism, but everybody says I should take this course because you really know the word. And so my approach to everything is show it in the word. So if we were going to have a conversation about why a woman could pray with feminine pronouns, uh, you know, from a theological perspective, you know, might talk about how uh, God transcends gender, uh, you know, we could do that. But I don't start there. I start with, well, we have this language and this language. And then we have this, this portrait of humanity being made in the divine image. And then they use both genders there. So it's, it's always show us in the word and then start from there to expand to how the world is not binary and even gender is more than binary. And that when the Hebrew Bible sets up um, paired words, it means this word, that word and everything in between. Mm. Like, the tree of good of good and evil is not here's a list of good things to do and a list of bad things to do it represents the whole scope of human knowledge that's on a continuum mm -hmm. and just as dusk and dawn are not binary the the day and night go through cycles of light and dark uh, and so one of the things that has become important as i've had a consultation group from the beginning uh, that included queer women and men and straight femme presenting men um, and some trans folk was to uh, have more non-binary language for human beings. And so you mm -hmm. will see more of that as we go through the volumes. Mm -hmm. This is what I'll say is that thank God there is someone like you who can learn Hebrew and translate it for all of us and share it with the world. Um, because I know that I don't have that capability. And so reading your works and engaging them have just busted out a whole world for me that I was not getting before. It has made me, I know as a pastor, much more authentically showing up in my spaces. I um, 
particularly have fallen in love and gotten to know the women of the Hebrew Bible and uh, Shipra and Pua, I mean, are some of my favorites and Hagar, um, because of your work and what you've done with it. Um, we are so glad that you joined us today. And I know that the conversation can go on for such a long time, but we just really want our listeners to hear right from you and um, to hear about your works and your scholarship. And everybody needs to go and get a woman's lectionary for the whole church. And what is the next one called? Uh, so the next one is year C. So okay. uh, ye, right now we are in year A, which is uh, Matthew, year B, which is Mark, came out in July. Come, they come out in the summer so people who plan long range can plan their advent. And year C will come out uh, next July. And uh, right now I'm after Pentecost. I'm about six Sundays after Pentecost. That's about where I am with that one. And for those of you who love Womanist Midrash, uh, the second volume did have to take mm. a play because we uh, had some, some illness and some death in my family. Uh, volume two is finished. Uh, I just have to uh, edit the manuscript, but I had to put that on hold because the ABC had to come out in that cycle of time. And so I had to push it, but Womanist Midrash volume two on the former prophets, Joshua Judges, Samuel oh. Keats, Queen of Sheba, the widow of Zarephath, Jephthah's daughter. Love it. Yes. And how okay. can our listeners um, get up to date? Can you share your website, social media, all that stuff so that they can hear it and find it right now? Sure. Everything is Will Gaffney, W-I-L-G-A-F-N-E-Y, willgaffney.com. Will Gaffney on Facebook, Will Gaffney on Twitter, Will Gaffney on Blue Sky. What is that? I don't even know that one. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. I don't know that one either. <laughs> uh, yes, Blue Sky. Well, um, we're so grateful for your time and and especially your work in the world. It is transformative. Um, we need we need you to keep going. So thank you for doing this work. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash JHLTB. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.